0: Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 46, The Decline and Fall of Imperial Japan. I'm your host, Jeff Hoke. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions to the website for helping to make this podcast possible. If you enjoy this podcast and enjoy history, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or ma- making a donation through our website. Don't want to skip over these episodes and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. In this episode, we're going to take a look at how Imperial Japan came to be, its political, social, and economic structure, and its collapse. The reason I'm covering Japan's history leading up to the occupation is because I want to establish some historical foundation around what type of society Japan was before we examine the U.S. occupation of Japan. Understanding Imperial Japan will illustrate the impact of the changes made by the occupation of Japan in the early Cold War. As always, please forgive me for any mispronunciations. Despite Japan's defeat in the Second World War and its occupation by American forces until 1952, Japan came to play an important role in the Cold War period. By the 1980s, Japan had become the second largest economy in the world, outpacing both the Soviet Union and Great Britain, nations which had been victors in the Second World War. Since the 1990s, though, Japan's star has faded with the economic rise of China and the rest of Asia. Yet it is still an important player in today's world, with the third largest economy and a high level of technological innovation. Japan, along with the United States, is at the forefront of robotics, artificial intelligence, and manufacturing. Coupled with this, Japan has also developed a soft power capability through its cultural influences. Japanese anime, cosplay, and fashion subcultures have all become influential around the world. Despite the cultural influence Japan has today, Japan throughout its history has been distinct in its ability to adapt and learn from other cultures, be it China, the Europeans, or later the United States. Japan had the ability and tradition of learning from the best and then implementing and improving on foreign technology and ideas to fit their own needs. Throughout much of Japan's early history, it was a cultural satellite of China. Pre-modern Japan, 1600 through 1868, was a feudal society, very much like medieval Europe. Who was ruled by a hereditary military dictator known as a shogun. The shogun exercised political authority supported by an aristocracy of land-owning knights known as samurai. The emperor retained only ceremonial and religious significance, lacking real political authority. Japan was an isolated and closed traditional society, as certain technologies were banned, such as guns, and communication with the outside world was limited and censored by the Tokugawa regime. The only Western nation that was allowed to trade with Japan were the Dutch under strict regulations. Japan's rise as an industrial giant and great power in the late 19th century seemed like an unlikely possibility in the 1850s. Japan had very little in the way of natural resources. The island nature of its geography and mountainous terrain limited agriculture. Japan had never been the richest part of Asia, nor the dominant regional power. In the 19th century, Japan was a technologically backward nation, yet by the 20th century, Japan had become the only non-Western great power. After centuries of little or no change, Japan started to change rapidly in the 19th century. Western ships began to appear off Japan's coast, more often due to whaling and trade with China. Many in the West hoped Japan could become a new source of trade and a base for resupply, but Japan remained a closed society. In 1808, during the Napoleonic Wars, a British fifth-rate sailed into the harbor at Nagasaki to attack Dutch shipping taking Dutch trading representatives hostage as well as all the Chinese and Korean ships in the harbor until they were given food and water. This provocation shocked the Japanese as they were helpless in stopping the British, for defense cannons that did exist in Nagasaki were either obsolete or non working. In 1825, an edict was passed to repel western vessels from Japanese waters, and the Japanese began purchasing cannons and mortars from the Dutch. And by 1852, Japanese armories began producing domestic weapons copied from Dutch design. Nevertheless, with the Chinese defeat in the First Opium War, 1839 to 1842, many Japanese began to believe that Japan's traditional ways would not be able to repel a Western invasion, even with the purchase of Dutch cannon. They argued that Japan should study and adopt Western ideas, especially around warfare. Traditionalists disagreed and arrested many of the reformists, forcing them to commit suicide. Nevertheless, in 1853, Commodore Perry arrived in Tokyo with a squadron of four steam-powered warships threatening to open fire if the Japanese refused to negotiate with them. In the end, Japan agreed to the American demands of opening two of their ports to trade, granting good treatment to the shipwrecked American sailors and the establishment of an American consulate. In 1855, the Japanese signed a similar treaty with Russia. Japan also witnessed the defeat of China in the Second Opium War, 1856 to 1860. Britain and France imposed what became known as the treaty port system on China. The West also took control of China's tariff system, setting and collecting Chinese government tariffs on trade. Westerners in China were also above Chinese law as well in what was termed extraterritorial privileges, meaning if a Westerner committed a crime in China, they couldn't be prosecuted under Chinese law. Many Japanese looked at Western commercial and Russian territorial expansion and concluded that Japan would be next. China soon became to many Japanese an example of what not to do when addressing European colonialism. The Chinese considered Western civilization as barbaric and China's leaders wanted no part of the Western trade or the accompanying, quote, spiritual pollution, close quote. Chinese elite's pervasive contempt for foreigners had discouraged the study of the West, and they failed to appreciate the unprecedented nature of the threat. Even the import of military weapons from the West did not address the fundamental security problem. The treaty with Russia and America, politically and diplomatically speaking, ended Japan's long period of self-imposed isolation, Damaging the shogunate's regime. This was followed by a series of treaties that recognized Western trading rights in Japan and the establishment of diplomatic relations in exchange for Japanese access to Western technology. Serious study of the West began in 1857 with the establishment of the Institute to Study Western Books, sort of like a Japanese think tank. Students were sent abroad to study law, navigation, medicine, mathematics, engineering, natural science, logic, Western institutions, military technology, and military methodologies. The Japanese had the insight that the West's power didn't come from its weapons and technology, but from its institutions that created these technologies and weapons. Study and importation of these ideas into Japan had a major impact on Japanese society. As in the West, the scientific method disrupted Japan's traditional society as modernity's values, logical consistency, fact, and efficiency above all else, advocating the end of backward and inefficient institutions and ideals. The Japanese believed that some level of westernization was necessary for Japan to survive in the current political climate. The Japanese had for centuries modeled their institutions on the Chinese, but after the 1860s, no more. Henceforth, they would emulate Western models instead. This, in the long run, would have an effect on Japanese-Chinese relations, as Japan came to see China not as an advanced society, but as a backward and failed civilization. Many Japanese, especially the samurai, were not happy with this arrangement, and attacks against foreigners and and Japanese who worked with them became endemic in the 1860s. In May 1863, the U.S. legation and, and Edo was torched. The Japanese economy also suffered during this period, as the influx of outside gold and silver resulted in inflation, and Japanese gold supplies quickly evaporated as Westerners traded silver for gold. Many Japanese merchants prospered, but many others went bankrupt and unemployment rose. The eighteen sixties witnessed a period of general instability as Western armed forces made military incursions into Japan, and Japan dissolved into civil war between the reformers and the traditionalists, with the reformers winning in what became the Boshin War, which saw the restoration of the Emperor's political authority and the fall of the shogunate and samurai. The only elements of traditional Japan to survive was Shintoism and the Emperor. The reformers used Shinto as the glue binding citizens to the state, file loyalty to the divine emperor who became the symbol and legitimator of the state. Imperial household was given a formal political standing with a semi-divine status which placed them above all other institutions within Japanese society. The Japanese government was also gave vast landholdings to the emperor and managed his financial affairs. By the 1930s, he was one of the most wealthy individuals in Japan if not the world, with an investment portfolio that was comprised of stocks from Japan's most lucrative companies and investments in her Asian colonies. Politically, below the emperor was the aristocracy, initially formed in 1884. This body consisted of three components. Members of the imperial court, who had traced their ancestry back to at least 1185, they had held these positions for centuries, intermarrying with the imperial family. The second group was composed of descendants of the regional lords, or daimyo, of the Tokugawa period. They had been displaced as a result of the Meiji Restoration, But the government had bestowed upon them the aristocratic titles in 1884, restoring them to a position of status and power as a means of purchasing their support. The third group consisted of men of merit who distinguished themselves during the Restoration or Japan's foreign wars. Many were descendants of samurai, merchants, or simple farmers. They won their noble status by distinguished government service, bravery on the battlefield, commerce, or educational achievements to the universities. Roughly a thousand aristocrats derived their status from family lineage. Male heads of aristocratic households were eligible to serve in the upper house of the National Assembly, the House of Peers. Thus, wealth in imperial Japan was stratified. In the countryside, the most important families controlled the largest landholdings and investments. Nevertheless, a strong middle class of yeoman farmers did exist in Japan. At the base of rural society, though, there was a large class of landless peasants. They attempted to organize politically in the 1920s and 1930s to achieve better treatment and equality with minor victories, but they continued to struggle to earn a living and lived at or below the poverty line even by the 1930s. High levels of household debt, sale of daughters into prostitution, widespread malnutrition, disease, high rates of infant mortality were very common for millions of Japanese. Not surprisingly, the life expectancy of a Japanese man in the 1930s was only 46. In urban Japan, status was more fluid and ambiguous. The established wealthy families of Japan's cities tend to live downtown, but the new rich made their presence known, making their fortunes in banking, cotton, textiles, coal mining, and food processing. New white-collar professionals also established an upper-middle class in Japan, the most prestigious of whom were the university graduates who staffed the new imperial bureaucracy, the nation's banks, insurance firms, trading companies, hospitals, and universities. Millions of middle-class and bourgeois Japanese populated the cities, owning small retail shops and craft establishments. Others owned small manufacturing firms and wholesale companies. At the bottom of urban society, though, were millions of workers, recent immigrants from the countryside. They included women who worked as house servants and men who held jobs in retail shops, small factories, or construction jobs. Despite the poverty and depredations of the countryside and the urban poor, like many industrializing nations, Japan had created a system of public education, like in France and the United States. In 1872, it made elementary school compulsory. The Japanese created a ministry of education, and by 1930, nearly every school-aged child got at least six to eight years of primary school. The objective of these schools was to teach basic math and literacy. Another element in Japanese education, as it was in other nations like the United States or France, was the indoctrination or education, depending on one's perspective, and nationalism and the history of Japan. Children were taught that the emperor was a living god and that they had to swear unquestioning loyalty to him and the nation. Most Japanese school children, after finishing primary school, went directly into the workforce as mill hands, household servants, urban laborers, or farm workers. A fraction of these children went on to public high school, which operated like private preparatory schools. The vast majority of Japanese could not afford to send their children to these schools. Moreover, most were located in cities and towns, so a combination of tuition, boarding fees, and costs put them out of the reach of many Japanese. Upon graduation, these students would apply to one of the nine imperial universities. Thus, although a few people of modest origins were able to rise in Japanese society, the Japanese education system essentially reinforced existing social patterns and structures within Japanese society. Economically, in Japan, there were only a few thousand large enterprises that employed one-tenth of the workforce and accounted for a large share of Japan's GDP. Many of these companies, despite their size and complexity, were relatively young companies dating back to the 1880s and the 1890s. A few had only been established at the beginning of the 20th century. Many produced modern goods and were in competition with Western manufacturers. The Japanese industrial sector consisted of three main parts, government enterprises, independent firms, and the zaibatsu. The government itself owned a number of factories, the railway, the telephone, and the telegraph system. The most important government-owned companies was the Yata Steel, which was one of Japan's major steel companies, the government arsenals, and naval shipyards. Independent firms operated in a wide range of industries, but the largest were textile companies centered on the city of Osaka. Each mill employed tens of thousands of young women. Some of these firms had been former government companies, which had been sold off to investors in the 1880s. Others, though, had been established by hard-driving Japanese businessmen established in the early 20th century. The largest amongst these independent firms were beer manufacturers, paper makers, glass manufacturers, and refined sugar makers. The largest of Japan's industries were the Zaibatsu. They were typically owned by a single family that exercised financial control of typically 10 interlocked firms through a holding company with interlocking directorships and a cross holding of shares. Typically, they consisted of several manufacturing companies, a bank, an international trading firm, a real estate company, a mining company, and an insurance company. These large conglomerates had formed in part as a way to protect themselves from the volatility of pre-war Japanese capital markets thus generating their own capital and working to become self-sufficient. By the 1930s, the four most powerful Zayabatsu were Mitsu, Mitsubishi, Sumoto, and Yasuda. Although a latecomer to industrialization, Japan presented a clear challenge to Western imperialism in Asia. In 1895, Japan emerged as an underdog as they defeated China in the first Sino-Japanese War. Many were further shocked when Japan defeated Russia in 1905, cracking the myth of Western invincibility. These victories gave Japan a small but growing empire with colonies in Korea and Formosa, and a spear of economic influence in Manchuria. In 1914, Japan joined the Allies in World War I, capturing Chindao from the Germans and Germany's islands in the Pacific, along with the growth of their economic influence in China. Japan also became a founding member of the League of Nations. Economically, though, Japan had been in an economic slump since the 1920s. World War I had created an economic boom in Japan as she supplied the Allies with shipping capacity, munitions, and industrial goods, but after the armistice, Allied demands dropped and Japan's industrial sector crashed. Japanese companies responded by making deep cuts to spending and letting workers go. Meanwhile, Japanese agriculture also suffered as rice prices plummeted as a result of rice imports from Japanese colonies of Korea and Formosa. Things only got worse as farm prices dropped as a result of the worldwide Great Depression that began in 1929. The sharp drop in silk prices was especially damaging to rural Japanese because many families participated in the silk industry as a way of making extra money and as a hedge against low prices of rice. This left many families with debt and widespread unemployment by the early 1930s. Many urban workers actually returned to their villages and reverse migration to find work, food, and shelter. Finance Minister Takahishi Kiyogoro adopted a policy of countercyclical government spending akin to Keynesian economics, moving Japan off the gold standard and investing in infrastructure. The government boosted investment in the economy to stimulate economic growth, and by the beginning of 1933, Japan started to emerge from recession. Nevertheless, the vast majority of this government funding had been funneled into the military and heavy industry. The military argued that the improved economy was not the result of fiscal policy, but the conquest of Manchuria in 1931. Takayashi vehemently argued against Japan's expansionist policy and spending on defense and empire building. He argued that they were a sunk cost with very little return on investment for Japanese, and was assassinated for these views in 1936. As a result of this economic revival, people started to flock back to the cities for work, and the urban population grew in Japan's major cities by 50% between 1930 and 1940, with the largest growth around Tokyo, Yokohama, Nagoya, Osaka, and Kobe. Politics in Japan by the 1930s took place within a complex structure of formal and informal institutions, something akin to Game of Thrones. Under the Meiji Constitution of 1889, the emperor exercised all legislative, judicial, and executive powers in the nation technically speaking an absolute ruler, like the Russian Tsar or Louis XIV. In reality, though, his authority was delegated to loyal public servants whom he appointed in a bureaucracy which carried out his will on a day-to-day level. The Japanese constitution stipulated a privy council or a cabinet of advisors led by prime minister, a bicameral legislature, a judiciary with limited powers of constitutional review, and the military, which was an autonomous and only questionable to the emperor. In addition to these formal structures of state which existed, there were informal structures and institutions. One of these were the Genro, or a collection of elder statesmen who had led the effort to modernize Japan, which had begun in the 1880s. They helped to integrate and coordinate the Japanese government through informal ties and relationships. These elder statesmen relied on their experience, stature, and connections for influence for nearly 40 years and selected the prime ministers, determined the cabinets, and advised the emperor. Starting in the 1930s, though, these men started to die off. Each bureaucracy increasingly became more and more self-interested. After their deaths, the struggle became less personal and more institutional. In the post-general era, each ministry had an internal career path closed to outsiders. Those within the ministry saw the importance of their ministry to the nation, but not how the other ministries functioned nor their value, let alone how all the ministries worked together to run the government. The Army, despite its power and importance, was the most stovepiped of these institutions. Some civil ministers might serve in the diet, but the Army and Navy hated each other and failed to see the value in the others. Navy officers at least saw much of the world, but the Army only saw Northeast Asia. Over time, the Army took more and more cabinet positions, closing down the diversity of opinions in the cabinet and thus limiting the government's options. This ended the old process of building consensus through the government and skewed power away from civil institutions in favor of the military. As mentioned before, despite these formal and informal institutions and the personage of the emperor, political power at the national level was diffuse and fragmented between different factions and individuals who struggled to achieve control over the political system. Aristocrats, generals, admirals, politicians, bureaucrats, businessmen, and powerful provincial families struggled with each other, and an ever-changing political landscape of alliances and betrayal. As a result, the Japanese government was politically unstable, similar to the French Fourth Republic we spoke about in previous episodes. Between 1932 and 1945, 11 different men formed 13 cabinets. Most governments served for just a matter of months, and only one survived for more than two years. The competition between these elites was fierce. Japan had developed party politics, but their power waned in the 1920s, inhibiting their ability to gain popular support and build political coalitions. Big businessmen, once the leaders of these parties, drifted towards other allies. The aristocrats maneuvered among everyone, and the military was in competition against itself, army versus navy, and everyone else. The yeoman farmers, urban workers, rural poor, and above all women had little or no influence in the politics of imperial Japan their nominal democratic institutions, such as the Diet and the House of Peers. Most of these people were disenfranchised as only male citizens over the age of 25 could vote. Japanese politics, which had been progressive in some ways during the early 20th century, began to radicalize. Some Japanese politicians felt they were being treated unfairly after the war. A big part of this was the 1922 Washington Naval Treaty. The treaty limited Japan's navy as the third most powerful in the world behind Britain and the United States. These treaty obligations enraged the Japanese Navy, which believed Japan should be an equal partner to the U.S. and Britain. Moreover, the Americans forced the Japanese and British to end their alliance as a condition of the U.S. agreeing to the treaty. Thus, Japan felt bullied by America and betrayed by Great Britain. As a result, in 1923, after popular outrage, the Japanese Supreme Command won the right to veto cabinet and civilian decisions related to national security. In 1924, the Americans introduced the Exclusion Act, which banned Asian immigration to the United States, which angered Japan. The Japanese were further angered when the West refused to support their complaints against China's violation of Japan's rights in Manchuria in 1928. The Great Depression and the rise of trade tariffs by the United States and Great Britain also upset the Japanese, who had embraced the Western rhetoric of free trade. Radical forces in Japan pushed against democracy, capitalism, and modernity pointing to the Great Depression as an illustration of the failure of capitalism and democracy. Cult of State Shinto, which grew during this era, discounted science, technology, and modern weapon systems. Instead, it focused on the spiritual core of the warrior and advocated an expansionist policy based on apocalyptic social Darwinist interpretation of foreign policy. In their view, Japan should either achieve a Pax Japanica in the Pacific and Asia, or be annihilated in an utter defeat. They saw no middle ground. State Shintoism emphasized two elements, the longevity of the imperial dynasty and its divine nature, along with the importance of the Japanese people and its special role in history. By the 1930s, many young radical officers advocated the overthrow of the government and embraced the samurai tradition. This was especially troublesome as they had an aggressively combative and racist worldview. Army and Navy officers did not attend Japanese universities and instead attended Japanese military academies their teens on, they were imbued with authoritarian views. They emphasized harsh discipline and unquestioning loyalty. In just six years, two serving and two former prime ministers were assassinated, whereas two other failed assassination attempts were carried out on former prime ministers. It was clear by the 1930s that the practice of compromise and consensus building had been jettisoned in favor of assassination. In this political atmosphere, the liberal elements of Japanese society were either imprisoned or driven out of politics. Japan also had a deep dispute with China. Despite Japan's achievements and its treatment by Western powers as an equal, China continued to diplomatically treat the Japanese as their inferiors, referring to them in diplomatic documents as dwarfs and midget pirates into the 1940s. These insults infuriated the Japanese. China still wanted Japan and everyone else to treat them as the hegemonic power of Asia, despite their meteoric decline. Japanese political instability threatened to spill into Manchuria as well. Since the fall of the Qing dynasty in 1912, China disintegrated into a long civil war that lasted into 1949, which resulted in a number of warlords on Manchuria's border. Above all, China was determined to expel the imperialists from China, most of of all Japan. China wanted to nationalize the railroad in Manchuria, meaning the loss of Japan's investments. By 1931, China and Japan increasingly viewed their goals as mutually exclusive. In their view, there could only be one dominant power in Asia. Japan was also concerned about the re of Russia as the new Soviet Union. They were anxious about the spread of communism into Northeast Asia, which threatened their investments in Manchuria. In July 1929, the Manchurian warlord, Zhang Wuling, tried to force the Soviets to relinquish all their czarist concessions. Zhang took over the East Chinese Railway. The Soviets responded by deploying 100,000 troops and defeating them by December. This struck a chord with Japan, who feared their economic sphere of influence in China was under threat from Soviet expansion. Compounding this in June 1931, Russian trains were, would be exempt from tariffs, but not Japanese trains, undercutting Japanese trade in the region. i want to take a quick break here and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. Recently, I received a final request to have Morgan Freeman narrate the podcast, which is a great idea. Nevertheless, the listener who requested this... Uh, We're going to need a lot more donations to make that happen. In all seriousness, your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, and covering the cost of books, sources, and sound equipment. Moreover, if you like episodes about Asian history like this episode or episodes about Indonesia or the French War in Indochina, help us by making a donation or spreading the word. As our next couple of episodes here will be focusing on Japan, and we will be having episodes covering the Chinese Civil War coming out this summer as well. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or me begging for money, become a Patreon supporter so that you can get access to our commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. Because of the Great Depression, many other Japanese argued that Japan needed to expand its empire, like France and Great Britain, to become economically self-sufficient. In 1931, the Japanese army, with little influence from the rest of the Japanese government, invaded and conquered Manchuria. The League of Nations condemned the unwarranted invasion, and Japan walked out of the league. China responded to the Japanese invasion with a nationwide boycott of Japanese goods, which severely damaged the Japanese economy. By the mid-1930s, young Japanese officers spurred on by the national euphoria over the conquest of Manchuria in 1931 created a domestic environment of national terror assassinating government officials and business leaders who stood in their way of their efforts to seize control of the government. They were convinced that Japan was encircled by aggressive Western forces in what came to be known as the ABCD encirclement. They argued that America was trying to keep Japan out of China, Britain was interested in controlling lucrative Shanghai, and that they were worried about communism and instability in China and resented the Dutch control of Indonesia. Patriotism silenced many of the opposition voices to this extremism and the Kempeitai, the Japanese secret police, dealt with those that refused to drink the Kool-Aid of extreme Japanese nationalism. Many members of the Socialist and Communist Party were either jailed or forcibly persuaded to recant their beliefs in favor of extremist nationalist positions. Throughout the 1930s, government censorship of the media grew. This imperial euphoria, domestic terror, xenophobia, nativism, extreme nationalism, and racism created an ideological climate in which Japan drifted towards war. By 1937, Japan had declared war on greater China. Japan captured China's major cities, the coast, and much of China's strategic lines of communication and transportation. Moreover, these objectives were relentlessly pursued without respect to civilian lives, the rules of war, or human compassion. The Japanese army behaved in a truly barbaric fashion, murdering and raping across China. In the most gruesome event in 1937, the Japanese army murdered some 300,000 people in Nanking and perpetrated wide-scale rape and looting. War in China pushed Japan back into recession, and the military passed through their plans of establishing a planned economy to finance and supply their war in China. In the north of China, the Japanese fought a persistent insurgency. As soon as they crushed a rebel group, a new one would pop up in the vast landscape. The scope of operations and instability of the region did not diminish but intensified. The Japanese general staff were tied to the idea that China, like a boxer in the ring, had a center of gravity. And if they hit that center of gravity hard enough, their opponent would fall down. Initially, they believed the center of gravity was Beijing and Nanking. And once these cities were taken, China would surrender. By 1938, they had captured both, but were no closer to victory. The nationalists moved their capital inland to Choking, beyond the Chinese railheads and behind high mountains of remote China. The Japanese, through their study of Bushido, also placed a high emphasis on willpower and targeted the morale of their opponents through terror, believing they could scare them into submission. Chinese, though, were not intimidated by Japanese brutality and terror. If anything, it intensified their resistance to Japanese rule. Not realizing the error in their strategic thinking, Japan identified China's center of gravity as her rich coastal cities, believing if they could be occupied, China could be brought to her knees. Again, Japan captured the Japanese coastal cities, ensuring serious damage to the Chinese economy and their own, but still China refused to surrender. The nationalists lost armies, but just rebuilt them, thus overextending the Japanese supply lines and manpower. China also continued to intensify their guerrilla war against the Japanese. In 1938, the nationalists had between 6 to 7 million guerrillas attacking the Japanese. This tied down the Japanese forces and impeded the ability of the Japanese to concentrate troops for new offensives. Japan simply lacked the forces to occupy China effectively. By 1940, it was running out of troops as Japan had suffered some 600,000 casualties in China by 1941. Despite Japan's technological advantage and its better military, China, with its vast stretches of land and huge population, was just too much for Japan to dominate, given Japan's smaller relative population. In many ways, Japan's invasion of China proper was similar to Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union. Moreover, like the Germans, the Japanese' use of terror tactics and indiscriminate violence hardened the Chinese resolve to fight against their occupiers. The more resources Japan poured into China, the more they demanded any peace settlement from China, which made their demands even less likely to be accepted by the Chinese. Japan's intervention into China had unwittingly united Chinese of every political background to fight against Japan, As the Chinese people saw the war as one of national survival. Japan's economy continued to suffer as a result of the war, and by 1940, the home islands faced food shortages. Nevertheless, military expenditures continued to grow from 30% in 1931, 69% in 1937, 75% in 1941, and 85% in 1944. Moreover, the war had made Japan more, not less, dependent on trade. By 1940, it imported, most importantly, 90% of its oil, most of which came from the United States. Japan, though, refused to give up on the concept of the center of gravity. Japan now believed that China's center of gravity was support from the outside Western powers, principally the United States and Great Britain. America didn't agree with Japan's aggression in China and grew more and more concerned with Japan's actions there as Japan became bogged down in China. Like Japan, the United States had interest in China, which dated back to the 19th century. Japan was the third largest trading partner of the United States, and the U.S. provided a third of Japan's imports. Nevertheless, the Americans had a clear sympathy with the Chinese people, who were being openly brutalized by the Japanese. Moreover, America also had economic and ideological interests in China. At the turn of the century, the U.S. had backed free trade in China, or what it called its open-door policy worked against the creation of economic trading zones or spheres of influence in China, allowing all nations access to China's vast markets. Additionally, there was a popular perception that China, with its huge population and latent industrial development, was a huge economic opportunity for American companies. The United States had also become influential in China's economic development through missionary work, medical and educational charities. The U.S. responded to Japan's actions in China with a sanctions on Japan starting in 1938, which grew more and more stringent as the war wore on. In April 1941, the United States started to aid China militarily with weapons and supplies lending $1.6 billion overall, or about $21 billion in today's funds over the course of the war. It also announced its intention of building the largest fleet in the world, overtaking the British, and announced that it would end the supply of cheap oil to Japan. The U.S. had also moved their Pacific fleet from California to Hawaii, meaning the American fleet was within the striking distance of Japan's islands, holdings in the Pacific, and its home islands. The Americans had moreover built up their forces in Guam and the Philippines, even dispatching their new heavy bombers, the B-17. This placed Japan's government and military in a difficult position. With the end of American fuel shipments to Japan, the military had a supply of oil that would last between 12 to 18 months at current levels of operation. Without American fuel, they would have to ration fuel and limit operations affecting military operations in China. Second, Japan in 1941 held a naval military advantage over the Americans. The U.S. did have a larger fleet than Japan, but the fleet was split between the Atlantic and the Pacific, thus leaving the Japanese with a numerical advantage. However, with the American naval buildup, by 1943 or 1944 that advantage would start to erode and by 1945 or 1946 it would be gone given america's larger industrial base japan could not hope to match america in a naval arms race therefore to those within japanese government they saw three possible options to their political and strategic predicament the first option was to withdraw from china and come to some type of diplomatic understanding with the united states this would of course result in a loss of face a blow to japan's diplomatic prestige And recognizing American military dominance in the Pacific and admitting defeat in China. The second option was to aid Hitler in his conquest of the Soviet Union, capturing the Soviet Far East with all of its natural resources. The region was sparsely defended, and in November December 1941, it appeared that the Soviet Union was on the verge of collapse. The Germans had killed and captured millions of Soviet soldiers and had captured Kiev, one of the Soviet Union's major cities, along with hundreds of other towns and villages. Leningrad was surrounded and the Germans were fighting in the outskirts of Moscow. It looked as though the Soviet Union would fall in just a matter of weeks. Option three was the invasion of Southeast Asia. These lands were rich in natural resources, such as rubber, oil, and foodstuffs, which could feed the Japanese war machine. Moreover, these regions were poorly defended. France, which controlled Indochina, and Holland, which controlled Indonesia, were both occupied by the Germans, and its colonies were sparsely defended. The British and Americans still did pose a threat, but most of Britain's naval and air forces and armies were back in Europe and Egypt, fighting against the Germans and the Italians. The forces she did have in the region were few and poorly equipped. The Americans did have sizable forces in the Philippines and Hawaii, but Japan still held a considerable advantage, and its troops were battle-hardened versus the inexperienced Americans. The first option, for obvious reasons, didn't appeal to Japan's militants. Second, it may seem mad or crazy that a nation will go to war to protect its prestige and honor, but it should be remembered that the U.S. persisted in its fight against communists in Vietnam for many of the same reasons. The reputation and prospective invasions counts for a lot in diplomatic relations. It should also be remembered that it's not easy for a nation to lose a war and admit defeat, no matter how stark the situation. Hundreds of thousands of Japanese had already lost their lives fighting in China, and Japan had made national sacrifices both economically and socially to wage the war in China. What were Japanese politicians and elites supposed to tell the Japanese people? That their sons and fathers had died for a lost cause and they had spent billions on an ill-fated expedition? Therefore, Japan, despite the consequences, decided to drink itself sober and double down and expand the war. Option two, the invasion of the Soviet Far East, was rejected in favor of option three. First, much of the resources in the Soviet Far East weren't developed versus those in Southeast Asia. The rubber plantations and oil fields were already in operation. Second, in the Soviet and Japanese border clashes between 1932 and 1939, Japanese forces had performed poorly against the much more mechanized and armored-based units of the Soviet Army. Granted, the Soviets would be fighting a two-front war— but that was no guarantee that it would be an easy victory over the Soviets. Moreover, Japan was already bogged down in a land war in China. An invasion of the Soviet Far East would require hundreds of thousands of more troops, which they just didn't have available. Finally, a war with the Soviet Union wouldn't address the growing American threat, nor would it address the immediate fuel issues of the imperial Japanese forces or bring a resolution to the war with China. Third option of war in Southeast Asia was chosen. European colonies were sparsely defended. The resources in those regions were already developed, and the Americans were considered weak-willed. Finally, defeating Britain in America, they believed, would end their material support for China, bringing about the final resolution of the war there in China. The Japanese believed that a swift surprise attack against Allied forces across the South Pacific and Hawaii would quickly defeat the Allies and bring the Americans to the peace table. They believed that the U.S. was weak-willed and would be unwilling to wage a protracted war after the destruction of their fleet at Pearl Harbor and the defeat of their forces in the Philippines. Therefore, on December the 7th, 8th, the forces of the Imperial Empire of Japan launched attacks throughout Southeast Asia and the South Pacific. The American fleet was significantly damaged at Pearl Harbor, but the Japanese failed to destroy the American carriers, its dockyards, nor had they destroyed the American fuel depots. The plan had called for three waves of attacks against Pearl Harbor, but realizing the American carriers were not at port, the Japanese Admiral Nagumo decided to call off the third wave of attacks. The American carriers had left port that Friday for training operations. Not knowing where the American carriers were, Nagumo feared that he could launch his final wave of planes and then be surprised by the American carriers, so he decided to cut his losses and withdraw. In retrospect, missing the American carriers left Americans with an offensive capability which they used to halt the Japanese advance first at the Battle of the Coral Sea and later at the Battle of Midway. Not destroying the dockyards allowed the Americans to repair many of the ships that had been damaged in the attack. Finally, leaving the American fuel depots in place allowed the Americans to maintain a high level of naval operations in the Pacific which would have been hampered with the loss of that fuel. Nevertheless, by early 1942, the Philippines, Indochina, Malaya, Singapore, Hong Kong, and the Dutch East Indies had all been captured by the Japanese. The Japanese had, however, miscalculated the endurance of the Americans and the British to continue to fight. After the defeats at the Battle of the Coral Sea and the Battle of Midway, Japan was put in the defensive, and the war grinded on in a slow war of attrition. Gradually, but decisively, and at great human cost, the Allies pushed the Japanese back. Japan's strategy became defense in-depth. They would fortify the outer islands of the Pacific and island fortresses, where each one was held to the last man, which was supplemented with suicide planes known as kamikaze, which caused immense damage and loss of life to American ships. The Japanese believed that the Americans couldn't stomach these types of battles, and after a few such engagements, would come to the negotiations table. The Americans, though, bypassed many of these islands and was willing to pay the dreadful price for those islands that they needed. In the Central Pacific, led by the U.S. Marines and Admiral Nimitz, the Americans advanced across the remote islands on their way towards Japan's home islands. In the South Pacific, led by General MacArthur, the U.S. Army and the Anzacs retook New Guinea and the Philippines. In Burma, the British and Indians and the Americans pushed the Japanese back out of of Burma into China. And finally, Japan was still bogged down fighting in China. Victory in the Pacific did not come easily to the United States, but Japan still had one-third of its forces, or about 1.8 million men, tied down in China. In 1945, the Japanese Navy had virtually ceased to exist, and the Americans began firebombing Japan's cities. In 1944, the Americans began to aggressively bomb Japan, targeting most of their major cities. 1945, the air attacks became almost unceasing, and over eight months, American bombers launched almost 300 raids, dropping 300 tons of incendiary bombs and withering attacks. Vast districts of eastern Tokyo were turned into ash in one night. 40% of Tokyo and Osaka were destroyed, and 50% of Yokohama, and 56% of Kobe. Tokyo's population dropped from a high of 7 million in 1940 to fewer than 3 million in 1945. Osaka's population fell from 3 million to about a million. Most of Japan's metropolitan areas wouldn't return to the 1940 level until the early 1950s. At sea, American submarines waged an unrestricted war against Japan's merchant marines starving the island nation. Only half the men and supplies from Japan and Manchuria even made it to their battlefields of the Pacific. The loss of Okinawa in June 45 made the invasion of the home islands imminent. The Americans had called for an unconditional surrender of Japan, and in the Potsdam Declaration outlined their terms for Japanese surrender. It was assured that the Japanese would not be enslaved or destroyed as a nation, but they would lose their empire. On surrendering, the nation would be placed under military occupation, and stern justice would be meted out to war criminals. Japan would also be forced to pay reparations, and her military disarmed. Her economy would be demilitarized, but eventually allowed to to reenter the global market. Japan would be democratized with freedom of speech, religion, and thought, as well as human rights implemented, and the occupation ended when a popular and responsible government had been established. By early this summer 1945, Truman struggled with the use of concessions, land invasion, or using the atomic bomb to end the war. Because of the secrecy of the atomic bomb, the question of whether or not to drop the atomic bomb was kept at the highest levels of government. Given the mentality of the period, it was decided to drop the bomb one of the most debated questions of history. As noted earlier, the American firebombings were already laying waste to Japanese cities, and the use of the two atomic bombs actually killed less people than the American firebombing campaign. Bombing of civilians was common in practice amongst both the Allies and the Axis during the war, so Truman's decision to use the bomb shouldn't be that surprising to us. Moreover, they were unaware of the long-term radiological effects that the weapon would have. Japan's initial successes, Japan's economy and manpower reserves were just too small to support our ambitious territorial claims. Shortages, political infighting, administrative problems, and food scarcity all contributed to the decline in living standards for the average Japanese. The Japanese once again started to leave the cities and drift back to the countryside to find food and safety from the American bombing raids. Only now that the dynasty faced the distinct possibility of defeat, did events force Emperor Hirohito to take a more active role in government. A lot of debate is focused on America's decision to drop the bomb in 1945, but Japan's leadership were just as guilty, if not more so, in not bringing about an end to the war. After the defeat at the Battle of Lady Gulf, it should have been clear to Japan's leadership that the Americans had the will to prosecute the war and that Japan lacked the material resources to stop a successful invasion of the home islands. Japan's leaders failed to translate these many military defeats into surrender. Instead, they believed that if they could make the invasion of Japan costly enough, the Americans would come to their senses and negotiate, allowing Japan to keep a portion of her empire and save her national honor. In this effort, Japan redeployed a million men from China to Japan proper. In the end, it was the combination of the atomic bomb and the Soviet Union's entry into the war that compelled Japan to surrender. The Japanese armaments minister had initially assumed that the United States had only one bomb, but after the attack on Nagasaki assumed that the United States may have close to 100 bombs. Foreign Minister Togo and the Emperor argued that the atomic bomb altered the military situation and that the Americans would continue to drop atomic bombs on Japan's cities with devastating effects. They were, of course, unaware that the U.S. had only two bombs. The bomb dropped on Nagasaki didn't induce the surrender of Japan, but it did confirm and amplify Japan's worst fears. Even with the use of the American atomic bomb and the Soviet Union's entry into the war, the Japanese War Council was split as to if Japan should surrender or continue to fight. The military, led by General Anami, still called for a decisive homeland battle, insisting that Japan should only surrender if there was no occupation of the homelands, the Japanese armed forces disarmed voluntarily, and war criminals would be prosecuted under Japanese law and Japanese courts. They were, of course, concerned that they would be prosecuted for their role in the war. They conceded that the atomic bomb and that the entry of the Soviet Union into the war had made military victory impossible, but that to surrender without fighting would represent a more serious spiritual defeat of the Japanese people. They argued that as the younger officers would never accept surrender and Japan had to have the last sacrificial homeland battle. Foreign Minister Togo led the peace camp and argued that they should accept the Potsdam declaration and insisted on ending the war on the sole condition of preserving the emperor's system. Hirohito saw that only his direct intervention could save the situation and sided with the peace lobby. Could it very easily have voted the other way and allowed the army their last great battle? Hirohito receives a lot of just criticism for Japan's conduct during the war But his decision to surrender in August of 1945 probably saved millions of his people's lives. Even with the emperor's decision, elements of the Japanese army refused to surrender and attempted to overthrow the government and stop the scheduled surrender broadcast. Japanese forces attempted to take control of the imperial palace and put the emperor under house arrest. They ultimately failed to gather enough support from the rest of the army, and they failed to destroy the recording of the emperor's surrender broadcast. So what went wrong? How did Japan become so successful in such a short period of time, creating one of the largest and shortest-lived empires ever? In my analysis, the failure of imperial Japan could be traced to three sources. The first was the political weakness of China. For thousands of years, China had been the hegemonic power in Asia, more or less securing the relative political stability of Asia. The decline and eventual fall of the Qing Dynasty in 1912 created a power vacuum in Asia. Japan feared that Russia would fill this vacuum and come to control Northeast Asia. Therefore, Japan pursued a series of wars in order to protect their interest in China and Korea. These wars, however, didn't end Chinese political instability. They only exacerbated China's weakness. Japan lacked the resources to impose a political stability in Asia. Japan's leaders in the 1930s refused to recognize and or understand that they could not dominate China in the long term. A Pax Japanica was just unrealistic. Second, the decline of the Genro generation caused significant problems for Japan. This generation understood how the entire Japanese government functioned and thought about Japan on a national level versus the leadership of Japan by the 1930s, thought about the perspective of their ministry first and Japan second. They failed to see the larger strategic picture as they focused on the operational levels of war, winning battles, but they neglected the strategic aspects of the war. The Japanese never play the devil's advocate in their strategic thinking. What if China has no center of gravity? What if China can't be intimidated? What if the United States is tougher than we think? Japan just kept rolling Bismarck's proverbial iron dice of war without thought of the consequences or the ramifications of those decisions, which ultimately led to the defeat and the occupation of their nation. Jinro were a much worldlier generation as well. They had traveled to the West, and many had studied in the West. They understood Japan's power relative to the West. The generation that came to power in the 1930s was less worldly, especially the army, many of whom had never been outside of Northeast Asia. Moreover, unlike the Jinro generation, they rejected logic and science in favor of a romanticized ideal of Japanese feudal society. This closed-mindedness and rejection of reason and logic made the Japanese to make uneducated and dangerous decisions like embarking on the conquest of China— in starting a war with the strongest industrial nation on earth on the assumption that their people lack spirit. Finally, the other political factions in Japan failed to unite against the growing power of the Japanese army. They let themselves be intimidated by assassinations and the nation be driven off a cliff before they came to their senses about the futility of the war and the insanity of the imperial staff. As always, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode as we examine the thought and planning by the Americans around the occupation of Japan. We will also examine how the Japanese dealt with their defeat and how they prepared for the arrival of the Americans. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in getting us more listeners. If you don't have a lot of friends in history and you are already a contributor, but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, Check out the pictures for this episode, ask questions, or donate to the podcast. Check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show.